Okay, I know, I know that was the kids' minute, but you realize that uh, so many times those kids' minutes are really adult moments too, yes? Those lessons are for us too, and uh, I'm grateful for that, Andrew, thanks. Another question, though, that I've been thinking about, and maybe you've experienced this before. If you're a parent, have you ever lost your kid before? If you're a kid, you ever been lost by your parents before? There was uh, several years ago, uh, Janet and, um, and, and Sophia, our middle, our middle daughter, who's now grown up, moved away, living in L.A., but we, we lived in Burbank, and, and they were, you know, going into a, a store there. I think they were at Target there in Burbank. And, uh, and from Sophia's side, as a five-year-old girl, her thing was, you know what? Shopping's boring. It's boring. And then she thought, hey, I'm, I'm going to do something fun. I know. Let's play hide-and-seek with mommy. <laughs> but even more fun than that, let's not tell mommy about it at all. And so, uh, from Janet's side, she's just going through the store, and then all of a sudden she's like, where is my five-year-old little girl? Where is she? And so she calls out her name, Sophia, you know, nothing. So it probably starts softer, right? Because you don't want to be the parent in the store that lost your kid, right? So it starts off with, Sophia, and then it's Sophia, nothing. So in the meantime, Sophia is crouched down. Hiding and thinking, this is so fun. Um, as Janet checked each of the kind of circular racks of clothes, she's walking from one to the other, looking. Eventually, she looks down, and there's Sophia crouched down, smiling and giggling. She's like, Hi, mommy, look what I did. <laughs> uh, and Janet was, you know, a, grateful to find our daughter. B, she's like, Sophia, you can't hide from mommy because I need to know exactly where you are. But again, if you're a parent or if you're a kid, you've probably experienced something like this. And what's fascinating is for us today in our going through the Gospel of Luke, this is similar to what happened in the life of Mary and Joseph with Jesus. As, as a 12-year-old boy. And so I want to encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. You'll find it on page 45 in the Bible provided on the chair rack in front of you. And if you haven't been with us, we've been traveling through the gospel of Luke and, and learning about Jesus. And we're learning a very historical account uh, that was put together by Luke the physician in the first century. And he's endeavoring to do research and he's been gathering the facts and he's laying it out for us in a way uh, that, that clarifies who Jesus is and what he's come to accomplish. And so Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52, because this is the word of God, would you please stand in honor of God's word and follow along as I read? Luke chapter 2. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. But supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey, and they began looking for him 
along, among their relatives and acquaintances. But when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us in this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the statement which he made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Let's pray. Lord, we we ask that in this time, you yourself by your spirit would teach us that we, we thank you that your spirit has penned these words for the purpose of transforming us into the people you want us to be. And so we ask that even now in this time, you would help us to grow and to know you in a deeper way. And that as we leave this place today, we would live our lives ahead in a way that's different because of your grace and your truth shown in your son, Jesus. We ask this in his mighty name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So we're going to travel through this narrative and, and enjoy just how it unfolds. And then we'll circle back and draw out some applications for our lives. But we find in the very beginning here that in verse 41, there's a tradition of, of Jesus' parents. Every year, they would go to the, the feast of, of Passover. And that was a really important thing. There were three feasts generally that the people of God were called to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. So Passover was one, Pentecost was the other, and then Tabernacles would be the other one. But the Passover feast was very significant because it celebrated the deliverance of the nation of Israel from Egypt. And you can kind of think about that in a moment and go, wow, you know, that's, that's very much in line with what Jesus' mission is, to deliver his people, to rescue them, to save them. And here they are heading up to Jerusalem. Geographically, that was the case. Jerusalem's on a hill. Everyone headed up to Jerusalem uh, to get to the city. And we find in various writings that, uh, that when, when, when a, a young boy became a man that was right around 13 years old or so, kind of similar to today's bar mitzvah that various uh, Jewish people would celebrate. But, but the, the Mishnah, which is a rabbinic uh, literature from, from a long time ago, some of the earliest work that they put together, they suggested that boys be brought into, uh, you know, into Passover and into the feast and into other things in order to learn and to prepare for that time when they turn 13 and kind of become a young man. And so this would be in line with that, that the 12-year-old Jesus, he's, he's being brought in to learn and to grow and to understand these things. And of course, um, you know, he's, he's probably excited, right? Because this is a big deal. He's, he's from Nazareth, all right? That's not a big town, folks. That's like way off in the boonies. And here he is, he's coming into the city and he's a, a young man. And, and he's, you know, at this point in time with Passover week, the, the, the city's just brimming with activity, you know, there's, there's the, the people that are passing through. Probably 200,000 pilgrims have made their way there to gather. 
And, and all the different spaces were rented to stay. And, and, and there were people that had come to, to, to sell things, right? We find that out even later in the gospel accounts. But certainly the, the, there are merchants there. There are people that are uh, there to celebrate the feast. There are sheep that are in stalls. There are, are pilgrims who are bartering, right, to, to purchase a sheep for the, for the sacrifice. And then as, as, as the sun would come up in the mornings, there would be the priests at the temple. And, and their, their first task of the day would be to take all the leaven that was gathered by candlelight from each home and they would ceremonially burn it to get rid of the leaven. And then they would prepare for the ritual slaughtering of the Passover lambs. And by midday, all the work would stop. There would be just a pause in anticipation of what would happen. And about three o'clock then in the afternoon, the sacrifices would begin. And, and we could think, as Joseph would participate, as his family, and he would be taking his, his young son, Jesus, with him to do that, uh, he would likely take him in uh, to show him how the sacrifice would be done. And so the gates of the temple court would, would close behind this vast group of worshipers, and the ram's horn would, would, would sound, and there would be hundreds of other worshipers, and they would slaughter the family lamb at that point in time. And the priests would stand in two long rows and they, they would catch the blood in gold and silver basins and they would douse it against the base of the altar. And then the Hallel Psalms would be sung together. And then Jesus' father would, would take the lamb as, as he uh, would go and, and sling the, the, the animal over his shoulder wrapped in its own skin and would depart with Jesus. And then at that night they would, they would take pomegranates, they would roast the lamb and it would be eaten after sundown by the whole family. And all this is going along with the liturgy of the day to show and to commemorate and to remember what God did when he rescued his people from Egypt. And, and you would think, and Jesus is there and he's taking all this in. And we understand that Jesus, again, he is the God-man. Now, maybe you've not considered this before. Maybe you're visiting today and you're just exploring the things of Jesus. And what we find out in, in the Bible is that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And we think about that and go, that's a mysterious thing. It is. It is. And yet we find throughout the scriptures that is the, the truth that unfolds for us. Uh, and so as a human, he's learning. He's growing. He's not just kind of hardwired with, you know, all knowledge right away. It's not, you know, a front-loaded kind of, you know, USB chip, just boom, it's there, it's all there. No, he's, he's actually taking it in. The night would end. People would, would return to the streets for more celebration. And certainly, you know, as Jesus would go to sleep that night, without question, you know, all these things that he's taking in and being exposed to is just... Just, just oh, 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 many ways, just sort of percolating within him, and, and he's thinking about it. And his whole family would stay the entire week in Jerusalem, and then, um, you know, the passage here tells us when the when the when the time was completed, they they left. And and the way they traveled was interesting in that time because most likely the women would be in part of the caravan, men would be in the other part of the caravan. And so it's very likely that Mary and Joseph just assumed that the other one had Jesus. I thought he was with you. Maybe when you lost your kid, you said the same thing to someone. <laughs> I thought he was with you. 
And then uh, they realize, wait, I don't have them. You don't have them. And so then they start looking. And uh, in verse 43, we find that Jesus had done something. He had stayed behind in Jerusalem. And you're going, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was a good kid. What's going on with that? Well, we're going to find out more about that a little later. But at the time, Joseph and Mary are disturbed, and understandably so. And so after they look amongst their relatives and they kind of go through the caravan and they're trying to find out where's our son, verse 45, they they decide to return to Jerusalem. They're probably about halfway, so they're probably about a day's journey away. They've got to head back. And they come back and and, uh, they find him in a very particular place. They find him in the temple. And you think, wow, that's amazing. There he is in the temple. And what's he doing? He's in the midst of the teachers. And, and, and that, was, that was an allowable thing. It wasn't, people weren't thinking that's just you know, strange that a young one who's about to turn 13 is there learning. No, that's what, that's what that t- place was for. And, and certainly we would see that this, this was very likely the outer court. Mary and Joseph are both there to find him. So certainly it would be the outer court. would be the area that they were in. And... Uh, and, he, and, he, and he's there. And notice what the text says. Uh, he's in the midst of the teachers and he's listening to them and asking them questions. He's learning. He's learning. Again, as a human young man, he's learning. But there's also within the instruction kind of a, an answering happening as well. And look at verse 47. Those who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So a lot of times there would be question and answer going back and forth. And, uh, and the ongoing response, notice in verse 47, is amazement. People are amazed. Those who hear his questions are amazed. Those who hear his answers are amazed. There's a, there's a certain effect that he has on the people that were gathered there that day. But his parents have another reaction to him when they see him. Notice what verse 48 says. They were astonished. That's a stronger word. <laughs> they weren't just amazed. They were astonished. Why? Because they're going, what are you doing? Where have you been? And, and, and certainly this brings up that question, and this is a centuries-old question. Was Jesus a disobedient child in this moment? Was he? I mean, the parents seem to feel like this is not right. Something's going on here. And, and, you know, you can see why people would ask that. The argument would go something along the lines of, look, Jesus knew probably when the caravan was leaving, most likely. He was bright. You can tell by the answers he's asked to the questions and the questions he's asking. And so, you know, maybe he was just so caught up in the excitement of Passover, he couldn't resist staying behind. But others would disagree with that view, and they disagree with that view for very good reasons. Um, Because one of the most critical things we see about the person of Jesus in the Bible is that he was one without sin. We see that over and over again. Uh, John 8, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why don't you believe me? That's Jesus saying, hey, if there's a sin, tell me about it. 8.29 8.29 in John. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. 
Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting that he should, we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Peter writes, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. John writes, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. The Apostle Paul writes, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, Certainly the Bible would tell us Jesus did not sin. So now the question comes, well, then what is going on here? What's happening here then? And I think this account is here to show us something. That the incarnation of Jesus was so genuine that Jesus was actually growing as a person. And so when we accept the incarnation, we realize that Jesus was genuinely a 12-year-old boy. He was human. Yes, he's God, but he's human. And as a child, he learned in his younger years what, that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And as a 12-year-old, he's still learning about different parts of life, including faith and including relationships. And as a 12-year-old, he did not have that fine-tuned social awareness that he would have when he was 30. And so the point is, he is capable of unknowingly causing his parents distress. As a sinless being, he was incapable of knowingly causing his parents distress. And so he unintentionally caused his folks to worry because he's a 12-year-old boy and he was completely absorbed in this massive spiritual depiction of salvation from God. Also realizing that he himself is that Passover lamb. Understanding what his father is doing in sending him. And so Jesus, with all sincerity, in response to his mom's question, why have you treated us this way? We've been anxiously looking for you. He says, why were you looking for me? He didn't know why they were looking for him. Sincere question. And then he goes on to say, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? You know what that shows us? That shows us that even as a 12-year-old boy, Jesus knew who he was. He knew exactly who he was. He referred to God as his father. Do you know what a massively crazy statement that would be for someone in that time? People did not do that with God. There's even a few references to God as Father in the Old Testament, but it's never in that familiar way. 
that intimate, personal way. Jesus says this, and his folks are just flabbergasted. But he is the son of God. The unique, one-of-a-kind son of God. The only begotten son of God. And so he states this. I'm here in my father's house. In many ways, when Jesus states that truth, verse 50, his parents don't know exactly what to make of it. They did not understand the statement which he had made to them. But what is significant about this? Well, as the gospel unfolds, we'll find out more. But we learn that there is a way in which this child has come from his father And this intimate relationship that he has with his father, he comes to bring that to all who will trust in him. We learn more about the message of salvation. We learn that we need to follow this one who already knows God as his father. He stands in his father's house. He learns in his father's house. He asks questions in his father's house. He gives answers in his father's house. He grows as a human child, yet fully aware that he is related to his heavenly father in a unique way. You know, later he's going to come back to that same temple. You know what he's going to do? He's going to clean house. He's going to take all those merchants who are just there in kind of corrupt ways, trying to take advantage of the Passover season to make a quick buck, and he's going to clean them out, and he's going to say, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a robber's den. Also, 18 years after this, when he actually embarks upon his public ministry, he's going to be using that phrase, that awareness even, of God as his father, as his personal father. So much, it's actually going to become kind of a trademark of of his ministry. It's going to be something that he says repeatedly. Even when he teaches his disciples how to pray, it opens with, pray in this way, our father, and they're going, oh, What? Jesus is God's son. God is his father. And before officially entering what culturally would be considered manhood at 13 years old, Jesus knew who he was. Well, his parents want to go. His parents say, Let, let's, we, we need to get back. And so what does he do? Verse 51, he goes down with them. He came to Nazareth. He's back home. And notice, he continued in subjection to them. The text there is telling us he was not disobedient prior. 
He was submitting to them, to them the entire time, and he continued to do so. I mean, did he feel like leaving at that time? From what I can tell from the narrative, from what we read here, probably not. But he did. He left with them. And notice, at the end of verse 51, his mother treasured all these things in her heart. She held on to them. She's done this repeatedly. We we saw that when the shepherds came and conveyed what the angels had said when they visited Jesus there in the manger. She treasured that in her heart. Now she's thinking about this and pondering this in her heart. And we find what's now becoming kind of a familiar refrain through this section of Luke. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. And so we see there that... um, like at the end of the previous section, we saw that when, when uh, the child continued to grow in verse 40 and become strong, increasing in wisdom. The one difference is we have the word stature here. That's a new word. And that means age. In other words, Jesus is getting, Jesus is getting older. He's growing up. And you can almost sense that, you know, from a, I don't know, from a, if you've had kids, you understand this. It always goes way faster than you think. And of course, everyone always tells you it's going to go faster than you think. And then you find yourself the one telling the younger parents it's going to go faster than you think. You know why? Because it goes faster than you think, okay? It just does. Um, Our youngest is now a senior in high school. I still can't believe that. We were just up at an all-school retreat with Berean Christian High School, and um, she sang a song, and it just got me. You know what I mean? When your kids sing, it gets you. I got to accompany her too, and I was just like, it's a highlight of the year for me, right? But, but they do. They grow up fast. And I think you do sense here this same idea with Jesus and his parents. Again, he is a human young man. He's growing, and now he's growing in stature. He's getting older. And Mary's treasuring things. She's pondering this in her heart, and she's going, wow. It's also fascinating to note In verse 51, when it says, and he went down with them, plural pronoun there, this is the last time Joseph is mentioned in the entire gospel account. We don't know what happened with Joseph. It's possible that he died prior to Jesus entering his public ministry. But his his adopted father will not be mentioned again. And now... We come to the, the, the narrative sets us up then for the beginnings of Jesus' public ministry. Now, what, what, what do we learn from this? What are some things we need to take away as we consider this passage? And, and there's several things, but, but the first thing to keep in mind is this Jesus is fully human, he learns and grows. Now, by fully, I'm not saying that's all he was, I mean by fully, he was truly, completely, thoroughly human. And I think that should be a massive deal to us. Because you know what that means? He truly does understand the human predicament, the human condition. That's why that Hebrews passage that we cited earlier is so beautiful. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. God isn't just some distant God up there going, yeah, you know what, you humans, get it together. Come on. 
I already gave you existence. I gave you life. Come on, deal. Let's go. He doesn't do that. And God doesn't just rescue from far off. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't just come along and goes, oh, look at those humans down there. I should save them. That's not what God does. He enters in. I, st- I still love that. You know, uh, a while back, um, there was a pastor visiting, um, I believe he was, he was visiting somewhere in Asia. It might have been Tibet. So some Tibetan priests were talking with him about spiritual truths. And they were all talking about how, uh, how you know, isn't it wonderful that all these different paths lead to God? You know, whatever it would be, you know, whatever. You, you want to be a Hindu, wonderful. Buddhist, wonderful. Uh, you want to be a Christian, great. All the paths, they just kind of, they all lead up this mountain uh, up to God. And then this guy, you know, he wisely kind of stops. He goes, okay, no, let me get what you're saying. What you're telling me is that, you know, whatever path I decide to choose, you know, be it this approach or that approach, uh, whatever philosophy I want to embrace, whatever religion I want to choose, they all go to the same place, up to God. And they're like, yes, that's exactly it. And he goes, well, what if God came down to us? What if he came down and rescued us? And they said, wow, well, that would be great. And he goes, well, you know what? He did. That's Jesus. And that's the difference. And so here we see Jesus' humanity. We see him coming down to us. And we, in that, we, 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 we take comfort. We also rejoice. We also realize that in being fully, thoroughly, completely, truly human, he is obeying the law of God in our place. That whole celebration of Passover that he's witnessing, he's also the one who is the fulfillment of that. And he's going to live that life that you and I could never live. And he's in the process of doing that even in this moment. The other thing we learn is, not only is is Jesus fully human, Jesus is also uniquely divine. God is his father. Personal. Relational. Abba is the term that is used. When he teaches his his disciples to pray. And so as, as the one who is the unique son, he is in a very, very, uh, though he identifies with us, though he is uh, completely human, he is also the one promised by God to crush the head of the serpent, as was promised back in Genesis when the fall happened. He is the victorious Messiah. He is the one who is returning to make all things right, to defeat evil to rescue his people. He's the one coming to establish his reign on the earth. We look forward to that. And so he's he's not only fully human, he's also uniquely divine. And that puts him in a different place. And that should cause us to question things. And again, maybe you're here today and you're going, okay, that does not make any sense to me. That's okay. We're glad you're here. You need to consider this. We need to 
allow uh, even the different passages of Scripture to saturate our minds. I think the mystery of the incarnation is what we call this. The incarnation is God, man, Jesus becoming man. The, the incarnation, the, the, um, the unique way in which Jesus is fully God and fully man, that is a mysterious thing. But I also think when we run into mysterious things in Scripture, it helps us to see something. We didn't make this up. If we were to make this up, we wouldn't have done that because that makes no sense to us. We also wouldn't have invented this thing called salvation by grace through faith. We would make it something where you had to do things and meet a certain standard to earn salvation. Oh, yeah. Like every other religion on the face of the planet. Yes, exactly. That's what makes, again, Christianity from the Bible unique. Something else we learned from this. The gospel accounts are historically accurate and trustworthy. This is one of those sections of scripture where you got to go, you know what? I'm sorry, but how is this being compiled? Remember Luke in the beginning? He's saying, I've done a lot of research. You know those phrases where Mary's pondering things in, in her heart? Very likely Luke asked her about it. What was that like for you? Certainly the Holy Spirit is revealing this, but he's also doing the footwork to gather the information. If you're Jesus' parents, if you're married, are you going to share about the time that you lost the Messiah? No. Not flattering. <laughs> that is not putting you in a good light. Yeah, I want people for the rest of the ages until Jesus comes back to read about how the day that I lost the Messiah. You know, great. But this is, this is real. It's messy. Not only that, is it not messy again? Was he disobeying? Was he not disobeying? Was he, you know, how does this work? What does this mean? But the Bible doesn't care about how messy the truth is. It just gives it to you. These narratives aren't polished up. They aren't cleaned up. They aren't corrected. They aren't edited or redacted. It's just like, here it is. I'm just telling you, from Luke's vantage point, that this is what happened because... Well, this is what happened. And that means you can trust what the Bible teaches. I know it's very easy to become skeptical about the scriptures, especially when, um, you know, in many places, in many quarters, uh, from educational institutions and, and, you know, media and other places, there's a lot of people that want to undermine our view of the scriptures. But I want to encourage you, when that happens, go after the truth. Dig into it. Do the research. There are some excellent resources for that. Um, we're actually going to be looking ahead at a time where we're going to be trying, even as a church, together to, to gather around some things about the trustworthiness of scripture. Uh, to equip ourselves for that even more. And you'll be hearing about that in the, in the weeks ahead. But uh, I, don't, don't shy away from that. That's an opportunity. That's an opportunity to, to grow. The most significant thing that we take away from this, and I'd like to conclude with, is this. Jesus offers you a personal relationship with his Father, the Almighty God. That's why this is here. Jesus is saying, this is my father. 
He's also going to say, you can know him as your father if you will come to me. He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says, this is eternal life. And he's praying to his fathers. He says, to, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He will pray later in that very same prayer and he will say, Lord, make us one. Even as he, as he says to his father, as you and I are one and we're one from before the foundation of the world. Now for all those who believe in me, Make them one with us. Again, these are all terms of intimacy. Do you know that you were made to know God? That's why you were created. And you're separated from him by your sin. And God could have left all of us there. That's all of us. We are all separated from God by our sin. And, and, and what God does, rather than just saying, forget it, I'm done with you, he comes in and enters in, in as we see here. And he, 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 as a human, walks through his entire life in obedience to God. Then he says, if you will trust me and receive my son, your sin is placed on him. He pays for it on the cross. His righteousness is given to you. How does that happen? By faith. What does that mean? It means to believe. It means to trust and so again, if you're here today and you're considering these things, Jesus calls to you and says, you can know what you've actually been made for. You can walk with God and know God and be reconciled or made right with your creator. And now you can fully live as you've been created to live. Your sins cast into the depths of the sea, never to be seen again. And maybe you're here today and you're thinking, well, you don't know what I've done. Yeah, I don't. You're right. But God does. God not only knows what you've done, he not only knows what you know about what you've done, God knows more about you than you know about you and what you've done. He sees it all. And yet he says, come to me. Believe and receive salvation. Admit that you're a sinner and say to him, God, I am a sinner. I need your forgiveness. And Jesus says that all who come to him, he will certainly not cast out. That's a promise. So enter the relationship offered to you by the Son. Know the Father through him. He's the unique, only Son of God. He's the only one that can give this to you. You can be rescued from sin and from God's coming wrath by knowing him through Jesus Christ. Believe on him today. Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. He's going to come before the people and he's going to declare the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come. But before he arrives on the scene, there's one who has been preparing the way for him. His birth was described earlier in this account and now we're going to find him in the 15th year of 
the reign of Tiberius, a very unique historical moment. And he's going to come forward and prepare the way of the Lord. And uh, we'll, we'll gather for that the next time we're in Luke. And uh, hope you'll join us for that time. Let's pray. Lord, we, we come to you and, and ask that, again, you would use this time to help us to see you and to draw near to you and to turn to you. We thank you for the unique, one-of-a-kind son, Jesus, who had to be in his father's house. We thank you for that intimate, unique relationship that he has with you and that we now can pray to you, our heavenly father, as he's instructed us. Not because of ourselves, not because of our own religious abilities or moral uh, standards, but instead because we come to you in Jesus' name. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we praise you now in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.